Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Let's read into those verses, starting in verse 31 together. And let's remember that this is the word of the living God. Let all who have ears to hear, hear the word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, or rather since God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is also at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, this is your word and we are the sheep of your pasture. Would you lead us into your pastures, Father, and cause us to feed, to rejoice in our God, to be strengthened in our God, as we are nourished by your word. May your spirit come upon each of us, Lord, in a fullness. May may he be filled up in us as we are letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness. Go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are knocking on the door of Romans chapter 9, if you can believe it, but we're not quite ready to open that door yet. I was planning, my intention was to begin chapter 9, at least in part today, Uh, but as I was spending time with the last two verses of chapter 8, the Lord just impressed on my heart, this is not flyover country by any means. Um, There is richness in these verses that the Lord wants us to know and to meditate on. So my prayer this morning is that the Lord will bless this portion of his word and strengthen all the faith of his elect. The beginning of this last section of Romans chapter 8 starts in verse 31 as we read, and it comes to us with a question. The question is, what shall we say to these things? And as we have talked about over the last several weeks, that is a reference, of course, immediately to what came prior, which was the golden chain, but also to the whole of the letter of Romans. As you may remember, the theme, the the one central theme of all of this book is called justification by faith in Christ alone. It's justification, and that's Paul's theme. He comes to it again and again in the book in a variety of ways. And we saw, really, that the the reason that that matters is because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us on this planet, no matter where you come from, what class of society, if you're male or female, what your socioeconomic status is, it doesn't matter. All of us have sinned. And we've sinned in Adam, our first father. When he sinned, his sin and the death, which was the consequence for his sin, passed on all men, everyone who would ever be born from him. And so we are born into this world with a problem, and that is our sin separates us from our God. Our sin has caused death, a spiritual death, a separation from the life of God, and consequently, physical death. The reason everyone dies is simply an evidence that we're all sinners. And the problem, if not remedied, will result in an eternal death, an eternal separation between a soul and 
his eternal maker, which is a state of constant torment, a conscious torment that's too terrible to even speak of. The good news, the gospel that Paul has been preaching in this letter is that God has made a way for us to be forgiven, to be made right in his sight. That's what justification means. He has made a declaration for his people that anyone who will trust in him alone and in his means of salvation, which he has revealed to us in the person of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will but trust him for your righteousness, the gift of salvation is freely given you. You are declared right in his sight once and for all time. That's the good news of the gospel that Paul has been reiterating. And he doesn't stop there. Justification is, a, is an essential part of our salvation. It's the forgiveness of our sins. It's the gaining of the righteousness of the only righteous one who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of his very Son in us, as though we had obeyed with his perfect obedience. But the Lord transforms us from that point to become more like that blessed Son of his. Christianity is not simply a profession of faith, it's a transformation of life. It is the, the life of God in the soul of a man, as Henry Scougal put it so long ago. That's what is essential to Christianity. And so Paul now in Romans 8 has been expanding for us the blessings of the man, woman, and child who is justified, who has believed by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for his righteousness. And by the time we get to the end of Romans where we are, and I know this is review, and thank you for bearing with me, but it's, sometimes it's helpful just to set the context, especially in the light of the question in verse 31. Paul wants us to know God's big purpose in all of this. And his big purpose, he made known to us in verses 29 and 30, really in verse 29 of Romans 8, which is that whom he foreknew, those he set his love upon in eternity, before time existed or anything was ever created, those people were marked out, they were predestined, they were selected or elected for salvation. And in time, he calls each one of them with an effectual call, bringing them to life from spiritual death, raising them with a, the first resurrection as the, spirit, as the scripture speaks of it. And those who are called, he justifies. That means that we now have believed the message that he's brought us of eternal life in Christ. We believe by faith and it is credited to us for righteousness. We're justified. And those who are justified, he also glorified. And we saw that wonderful truth that Paul puts glorification in the past tense because it is such a certainty. Those who are justified will all be glorified. That's the point of the golden chain is to know God's salvation is all linked together wonderfully and you can go back to the beginning which is a misnomer since there is no beginning in eternity but for our small minds we go back to the beginning and recognize that God purposed this salvation even before there was anything it just because he wanted to in his own mind and then in space and time he justifies by bringing the message of faith in Christ and we grasp it, we believe it, and then all of those people, he's moving along the chain to a final glorification. We will be saved completely, not just your soul, but your body as well. Even at the last day, this corruption, this corruptible body, which is going to go into the ground or be burned, whatever it is, is going to be raised incorruptible and eternal and glorious, never able to perish again. That's the wonderful truth. And Paul has cued that up for us by saying, well, what should we say to these things? If you know the purpose of God, that he's moving every one of us along that path, that's the direction we're all headed. We're being led by the Spirit to final glory. If God is for us, and clearly he is, then who can be against us? You see the power of his question? And so we spent time looking at two main objections that Paul 
anticipates from his hearers up to this point in the letter. And those questions are what person can be against us and what circumstance can be against us. Is there anything that can break the chains so that we don't make it to final glory? That's what you need to keep in mind as we go through this section because that's the question he's answering. And we saw that the answer to that question, he answers in this way. It's the love of God that precludes it. No one and nothing can prevent us from being conformed to the image of his Son. Because God's love precludes it. And the evidence is this, verse 32, He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. That is, he delivered him over to death, even the death of the cross, a shameful death where he would bear the full wrath of God, an eternity of hell for you and everyone who would ultimately believe. He delivered him up to death for us all. He, he spared not the greatest expense. And if he did that, which he did, will he not give what is lesser to you in order to bring you to eternal glory? Will he not freely give us all things for that purpose, to that end? Of course he will. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God has made a choice. And it is God who himself, as the judge, justifies you. No one can bring a charge against you that will stand in his presence because he is the judge and he's already determined that the verdict is not guilty. The verdict is blessed. You're in my family. And I love you and always will. Who is he who condemns? Is there anyone who can demand a verdict of guilty in the court of God's um, presence? At the, at the bar of his justice? Of course not. What's his reason? In verse 34, it is Christ who died. And then here's the mountain, the ironclad defense that we have when this accusation comes and when the condemnation comes. Christ died. And furthermore, he's also risen. He's been raised for you who is even at the right hand of God, that is at the right hand of power, exalted, honored, who makes continual intercession for us. And this wonderful truth that we have the Lord Jesus Christ who is interceding for us continually as our advocate in heaven. And at the same time, we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, who is indwelling our hearts here on the earth and he is advocating for us without ceasing. We have two high priests who constantly advocate for this purpose, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ so that he would be the preeminent one among many brethren. And that's not to say that we one day will become God or gods as the false religions and cults teach, no. But that we would be conformed to the image of the Son who was the perfect man in his humanity. That we would become those people that God intended us to be before the fall, at the creation. Christ has fulfilled that and he is fulfilling it for each one of us. We are no longer walking according to the flesh, are we? We're walking according to the Spirit. And all of God's power, his love, his grace is all engaged to that end, to bring you to that point. Now, Paul is not done with his argument He's mentioned several circumstances, starting in verse 35, that potentially could be against a person, could even cause separation between people and people in earthly terms. And he mentions seven things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And we talked about those things at length last time. But Paul's answer is, in all these things, even through death, we are more than conquerors, verse 37. Super conquerors, hyper conquerors is what he says in the Greek. Through him who loved us. We're not super conquerors in and of ourselves. We are super conquerors because Christ is the super conqueror. Did he not conquer sin and Satan and death and hell at the cross and in his resurrection? He did. He's the super conqueror and all who are in him 
are conquerors because he's the conqueror. And it's because of his love for us, his love for us, that we can never be separated from his love. I love that. It's his love that undergirds his purpose. His grand purpose is is undergirded by his own love. And you might ask, well, did his love ever have a beginning? It didn't. It didn't. His love is eternal. And so the argument is this. If his love never had a beginning, then of necessity it can't have an end. And that means that your salvation is secure because it's undergirded by the strength of his own eternal love. Now, as I say, Paul is not done talking about those things that may come against us. He's got another list of circumstances that can come against us. And he wants to give this to us. I'm convinced he's laying this before us because he wants to build our faith even further. He he wants to prove how it is that we are truly super conquerors through Christ Because he's going to bring up every other conceivable circumstance that could come against a person to ultimately separate them and sever them from the love of God. Well, here's what Paul's going to do. Paul is is giving us the word so that by the Spirit of God, we, each one of us, would develop a conviction That we are super conquerors. And and know it not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Because if you know that truth, and you understand that you are truly super invincible, really, is what we're talking about here, in Christ, nothing can cause you to fall off and, and not make it to the end. Then that changes the way we live, doesn't it? It changes the way we live. If we know that we are invincible, in Christ, then we're free to serve him with our whole hearts because now fear has gone out the window. That's where he's bringing us to. That's why this section matters. So that's why I wanted to spend some time with you on this. Now, look with me at verse 38. Paul begins verse 38 and he says, for, for always means, I'm going to illustrate something for you. I'm going to explain what I was just talking about. He's saying, let me illustrate for you the extent to which you are super conquerors in Christ. And he's going to give us four groupings of what I'm going to call realms or domains that exist, that are known, through which potential threats can come. And he's going to show us that none of them can stand against the love of God. These are going to serve as our main headings for today. There's Four groupings. And the question is, can any of these realms separate us from Christ and his love? Paul starts by saying, I am persuaded. I am convinced. In fact, he uses the perfect tense there, which that means an action that was completed in the past that has continuing effects. So he, he's saying, I have been persuaded or I have been convinced How? By both his personal experience, remember, of those seven circumstances we talked about last time in verse 35, he had personally experienced six of them at the time of the writing of Romans. So he has a personal conviction about this, but especially a conviction through the Word of God. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, here's the first grouping. The first grouping is the realms of death and life. It's a pairing. He says, neither one can separate us from this love of Christ. Well, let's take death first. Death is a problem from a human perspective, right? Because normally, death separates and makes a final separation between people and people. And for the wicked, death marks the final separation between them and God forever without possibility of reconciliation. David, in Psalm chapter 6, verse 5, wrote, For in death there is no remembrance of you, speaking to the Lord. In the grave, who will give you thanks? Is it possible for the dead to praise God? Well, if you're not in Christ, no. Psalm 30, verse 9, What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth 
How can the dead remember God? How can the dead give thanks and praise the Lord? Well, Romans 8, 38 and 39 answers that question. Even death cannot separate us. You will praise the Lord in death. I want to give you a couple things to think about here. The first is the fear of death cannot separate us from his love. The fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. This is speaking of Jesus Christ sharing our nature in the flesh, in the flesh, yet without sin. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. The fear of death always relates to torment, to the notion that one will be punished eternally. Christ's death, the author to the Hebrews is saying, was sacrificial and substitutionary for his people. He took away our penalty that we deserved by being sinners and all the sins that have been amounted in our lives. He took it all upon himself so that in his death, he destroyed the power of the devil. And as I think we've said before, that refers to his power of accusation. He took away the power of accusation from the devil through his death. And through all that, he takes away our fear of death. This lifetime of bondage to being in fear of death. We have no fear of death anymore. We need not have fear of death anymore because Christ has taken the sting of death fully upon himself for us. So the fear of death cannot separate us from his love if you're in Christ. And secondly, death itself can't cause a separation from his love. Why do I say that? Well, we know from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 that there is no gap, no No time that elapses, no soul sleep, if you will, when a person closes their eyes in death in this world. We are confident, the Apostle Paul says, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. As soon as death occurs, the separation between soul and body occurs, but your soul, your spirit, is already with the Lord, seated with Christ in the heavenlies now. So there is no gap, there's no separation, even in death, from the love of God. You are ushered immediately into his presence where you will praise him and thank him and rejoice in him before the throne with all the saints. Death itself can cause no separation for us. You remember what Jesus said to that thief on the cross who looked at him with faith and knew that he was Lord, his Lord, He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. There's no gap. As soon as you close your eyes in death, you're with me. And that is exactly what Christ prayed for in John 17, didn't he? In verse 24 of John 17, the Lord Jesus, speaking to his Father, said, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I'm praying that they would be with me, these whom you have given me, this love gift from the Father, that they would be with me. You might, and you say, when? What's the context there? Always. Always. That they may be with me in this life by the presence of the Spirit of Christ in them and that they may be present with me when they close their eyes in death. And that they may be with me at the last day when I raise their bodies from the dead. Always. There is no separation for those who are in Christ. So death is off the table. Death is not the cause of any kind of separation. What about life? There's the other part of the pairing. What does he mean by life? How can life cause a separation? Well, what he's saying is, is there anything in life that can cause a separation between us and the love of Christ? In my mind, was drawn to the parable of the sower. You might recall in that parable, there are four kinds of soil that are described. One is just the 
the side of the road where the seed never even has a chance. It's picked off by the birds of the air. But then the next two types of soil are soils where there seems to be some growth for a time, right? But the problem is there's no root, either because the ground is too rocky or it's too thorny. And so those who are that soil, who have that soil as their heart, when the word comes into their heart, it doesn't remain. And I want you to listen to this case of the, the thorny soil in particular because it relates to what in this life can separate us. Mark 4, verses 18 and 19. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So, Think of the best that this life has to offer. Uh, Think of uh, the riches of this world, its pleasures. Can any of those things choke us out ultimately? Is another way of asking the question. Romans 8.38 is saying, no, no. Because true Christians are not of that soil type. They're not of the thorny soil. They're not of the rocky soil. They're of the good soil where the Word of God goes in and takes root, deep root. And every plant that grows out of that ground is fruitful. Different amounts of fruitfulness, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But everyone who is planted in that ground, or rather, where the Word of God is planted in that heart, is fruitful. So no, that is not describing the true Christian. But you might say, well, what about in a moment of time? I mean, don't we as Christians struggle with sin and and get off the path and even revert in some ways to our old lives? Yes, but what happens if you're a Christian? The promise is that God will bring his heavy hand of conviction upon you and lead you to repentance, a repentance that leads you to life. So it's not possible that you be lost ultimately, or that you wither and die, but Christ himself keeps you. Do you know something of that, loved ones, in your personal experience? Have you ever veered off the path of life, perhaps turning back to old patterns to pursue satisfactions or pleasures that you were deceived into thinking could still bring you satisfaction or even help in a time of trouble? If you are a Christian... I can tell you that here's what you discovered. You may have experienced the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season, but ultimately you became a miserable Christian. Why? Because you became like the prodigal son? Because you spent all your inheritance, all your resources, and then God in his providence brings a famine upon your soul so that you experience true hunger? And you find that you have no resources in yourself to satisfy the longings of your heart. And you try and try in your own strength, but the Lord will not allow you to satisfy yourself in your own strength. And it's not until he brings you to a point of desperation when you realize that you are in the slop with the pigs, desiring to eat their food, that the Lord brings you to yourself. He gives you the gift of repentance, of confessing your sin before the Lord. And you, you recognize from that point that you just have to get back to your father, right? Even if it means renouncing your privileges, your sonship, and just being a lowly slave in his house. It doesn't matter. You just have to get back to your father. And you knew that your sin was ultimately against heaven. It was against your father, And that you had no right to call yourself a son, but you started to run. And the wonderful, beautiful part of this is you realize as you're running that your father is also running toward you. In fact, he saw you from a distance before you saw him and ran to you and embraced you and kissed you and restored you in every way, gave you every privilege that a son has in his household. Because you're not a slave, you are a true son. And he proved it to you by bringing you to that point of desperation and repentance. Can anything in this life separate us from the love of God? No, 
For true Christians, the Lord will not allow it. And if you are wayward as his child, watch out. He is going to, to chasten you. He's going to correct you. He knows how to do that, and he does it incredibly effectively. But if you're not a Christian, the truth is that the cares of this world, the desire for other things, other things, anything other than the word, will choke out the word in your life and you will depart the faith. But that doesn't mean that a separation came between you and God. You were never connected to him in the first place savingly. That's the truth of 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out to make known, make manifest that they were not of us. Those who are in Christ can never be separated by his love. So the first grouping is neither death nor life. Nothing in death, nothing in life can separate us from the love of God. Here's the second grouping. The second grouping is what I'm calling the realms of spiritual and earthly powers. Spiritual or earthly powers. He says, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. And in the English Standard, the New American Standard, and the Legacy Standard Bibles, um, angels and rulers are listed together, and then comes things present, things to come, and then powers is kind of put off over to the side. And I've read some commentators saying, I, I don't know why powers are off to the side. They really should be grouped together with angels and principalities. And when I looked at the Greek, surely enough, it's grouped with angels and principalities. So here's one for the King James or the New King James. They grouped it together rightly when they say angels and principalities and powers. Angels referring to messengers of God, good angels. It's straightforward. Principalities can also be translated rulers, and it can refer to either good or evil angels, depending on the context. And then powers, dynamis, is grouped with principalities or angels in the New Testament. So powers can refer to uh, miracles, and if, as we think about it in the context of what powers can separate us from the love of God, well, Satan has power to perform signs and lying wonders, doesn't he? None of that can effectively come against us. In other words, we can't be deceived by him ultimately. But these powers can also refer to people who have the power of influence. So think of political influence or economic influence in this world. Those powers can also refer to power arising from numbers, the aggregation of armies or forces. And that can be earthly armies. That can also be heavenly hosts or demonic hosts. So what is Paul saying? He's saying there's no angelic power, whether good or evil. There's no earthly power, whether it's governments, political rulers, economic powers. None of it can separate us from the love of God. And then Paul defines what I'm calling the dimensional realms, the dimensional realms, and there's two, horizontal, horizontal and vertical. Horizontal is the dimension of time. This is the third heading, time, where he says, nor things present, nor things to come. So the question you could ask here is, is there any trouble of the present time that you're experiencing now? Or is there any fear or worry about what might happen in the future that can separate you from the love of God? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we have an element of time that Peter talks about. In fact, the present time. He says, though now for a little while, what does that refer to? Well, that can refer to a little while. It might be days or months or even years in your life. But it also might be your whole life. Because in the light of eternity, this life is a flash in the pan, isn't it? This is a little while. And so he's saying, if you're worried about the trials that have been brought into your life at the present, don't worry about them. Don't fret about them. Why? Because Peter's saying they're actually purposed and designed in order to prove your faith. Not to God. He already knows those who are his. But to us, to you. Your trials at the present, though they may be grievous to you, cause you distress, are actually working a great purpose to prove that you belong to him and that he is bringing you to final glory. So don't be troubled about the present. What about the future? Are you worried about the future? Are you worried that you may get to the end of your path and not find the eternal life that you're hoping to find? Look what he says in verse 8. Concerning Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Do you love him? Though you haven't seen him with your physical eyes, do you love Christ? Another way of saying that is, are you serving him? Do you obey his commands? Do you live for him and no longer for yourself primarily as the new pattern of your life? Though now you don't see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Has the Lord given you a joy inexpressible and full of glory as you contemplate the Lord Jesus and all he's done for you? If you have, if you do, rejoice. You know that he is bringing you to the end of your faith, which is the gift of your final salvation. Same idea if you turn over to chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Chapter 5, verse 10. But may the grace of, excuse me, may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while. There's the time element again. What? Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Don't fear the trials of the present. They're purposed by God. They they shouldn't be a surprise. God's told you he's sending them for this purpose. That he may perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That is all the way to glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 is another good verse to note in this connection. Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So there it is again. Don't fear the trials of the present. They all come under this heading of a light affliction, a momentary affliction, a little while while God is preparing all of us for an eternal weight of glory which will be revealed with certainty. So there's nothing in the horizontal dimension of the present or the future to concern us. And then Paul moves to a fourth grouping He moves from the horizontal to the vertical. And he talks about the heights and the depths next. Verse 39 of Romans 8. Nor height, nor depth. The heights in Scripture can refer to a few things. The heights can refer to dangers and difficult trials. So you could ask, is there any danger that could come down to us from the heights above and cause a separation from God's love? In other words, could God's condemnation still come upon us for a sin that we have yet to commit? Do we feel that the arrow of his justice is pointed at us just waiting for the right time to release it? And of course, when that thought enters our mind, we come back to verse 33 of Romans 8 and 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. 
further. He is risen and at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. So no, there is no pending threat from above anymore if you are in Christ. You could think of that in terms of a storm, right? Trials are often thought of in terms of storms. Is there a storm that could come down from above? Are there rains that could come down and winds that would beat on the house of your souls so heavily that they would cause that house to crumble, to utter ruin, to destruction, right? This is what our, war, our Lord warned of in Matthew chapter 7 about the wise and the unwise builder, the one who builds his house on the rock, on that solid foundation versus building on sand. And what is the difference? Well, those who are wise are those who not only hear the word of God, but who do the word of God, who practice the word of God, who obey its commands. Those are the wise builders who have built on Jesus Christ. It's not enough, is it, to say, I know that Jesus is Lord. If you don't, Embrace him by faith as your Lord and Savior. It's not enough to know that a parachute can save you if you have to jump out of a plane at 30,000 feet or let's say 10,000 feet. <laughs> it won't save you unless you actually put it on, right? There's all the difference in the world between saying Jesus is Lord and knowing it intellectually and actually stretching out your life upon him in full dependence There's no such thing, brothers and sisters, as a trial that's so large, so high in height, that it could be seen as the perfect storm that would ultimately capsize your boat and cause you to sink into the sea of God's wrath. The heights in Scripture is also a metaphor for pride. For pride. I know we're talking about circumstances and not people in this particular section but let's just ask this. Circumstantially, could there be a person who is so lifted up with pride that he would come against us or she would come against us to destroy us and cause a separation between us and our Lord? The uh, proverbial Goliath, if you will, who shouts at you with great words of threatening, perhaps some loud voice from the world or even from your own flesh, your old self, who speaks great swelling words of pride, threatening to destroy you. Or another way to think about it is this, thinking about the heights and pride. Is there any danger of being elevated with pride to the heights yourself? Perhaps through the world's prosperity or by having knowledge or by flattery as we looked at last week with Paul and Barnabas when they were in Lystra and the priest of Zeus was trying to sacrifice to those two thinking that they were gods? Is there some pride that could lift us up and cause us to abandon the Lord? And the answer again is no. That doesn't mean that we'll never fall to the temptation of pride or fall into pride. We do. Again, we're not perfect. We're sinners who are forgiven. But we are not known as proud people anymore in God's mind. Christians, his children, are the humble. Because that's our pattern of life. He's, he's humbled us. He's brought us low before him, hasn't he? And so when we fall into pride, and we most certainly do, what's, what makes the difference? What shows that we're Christians? We repent. We repent. The world who is proud don't struggle with pride like we do. They're fine with their pride. They don't repent of their pride. Only Christians struggle with pride and repent. And that actually shows that you're humble. By God's grace. Hmm. So, there's the heights. Trials from above. Threatening words from those who lift themselves up with pride. Perhaps even circumstances that would cause you to be lifted up with pride. None of it can separate you. What is meant now by depth? Depth. Well, the depths are pictured in Scripture often as seas, like oceans, seas, or great waters. Listen to Psalm 93, verse 3. Psalm 93, verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. And the floods are just a reference to the flowing of the sea, the ebbs and flow, ebb and flow of the waves. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. 
And the sea and the waves in Scripture are often metaphoric for sinful humanity, for a chaotic people who are dark, foreboding, never at rest, and always loud and threatening. And so the depths can simply be a metaphor for the wicked who lift up their voices against us. Those who seek to drown us or destroy us. And the question again, can the depths separate us from the love of God? Well, the psalmist answers that in the very next verse in Psalm 93 verse 4. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. In other words, all the power of the wicked, if you were to combine it together like a mighty raging ocean, a, a tempest, it's nothing compared to the power of God who is on high. Nothing. When we sing that wonderful hymn, The Solid Rock, I love this verse. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When the floods surround us, when these uh, attacks come from others who are seeking to destroy us, the Lord is our hope and stay. He's our anchor who causes us to be fixed. Sometimes the depths are described as that which proceeds from the depths of the heart, from the heart of a person, and especially in the context of the wicked as they are plotting and planning schemes against the righteous. Turn with me to Psalm 64. This was our corporate reading this morning, Psalm 64. And listen to David again. He says, Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, and he describes what that is, bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless, the upright. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme, is what they say. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. Deep. So the depths can refer to the heart of a man. And specifically, the the secret plots that wicked men plan there, that no one hears except for God who reads the heart, who sees the heart as clear as day. So can anyone devise plans against us in the heart secretly that ultimately would overtake us and destroy us, cause us to lose our salvation? Can anyone mock us or ridicule us or make fun of us to the extent that we abandon the faith? because we're brought to the depths of disgrace or humiliation. David answers that question in verse 7. He says, But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. For they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Why? Because the Lord is our defender. Because he vindicates his people. Though the wicked plan their schemes quietly in the hearts deep down, in their depths, the Lord avenges his people. He protects them. He will shoot the arrow into our enemies. And that ultimately comes at the last day if those enemies haven't repented and trusted in Christ. Psalm 33, verse 10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 21, verse 30, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Job 5, verses 12 and 13, 
he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. He turns the wicked schemes of the wicked against themselves. Isaiah 44, verse 25, Isaiah says, It is the Lord who frustrates the signs of the babblers, the liars, and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. So the depths cannot separate us. Sometimes also worth noting that the depths are described in terms of false teaching, the ability to deceive others. In Revelation chapter 2, we have the Lord Jesus Christ who is standing among his seven churches. And to the church at Thyatira, he says this, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So the depths can be deceitful doctrines, doctrines of demons. And in Thyatira, there were teachers teaching that it was okay to engage in sexual immorality or just plain idolatry in order to benefit from the city's economic prosperity. So Christians, can we ultimately be deceived by Satan? No. No. There is no depth that can come against us to cause us to lose our salvation. John 10, as we read this morning in the context of his sheep, John 10 verse 4, And when he brings out his sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. They will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. True Christians follow the true shepherd. We can be deceived temporarily, loved ones. That's getting out from the fold a little bit. But the Lord uses his crook and his rod to bring us back into his fold so that we continue altogether with him in the same direction. We cannot ultimately be deceived. Isn't that comforting to know? You've been given the mind of Christ. You have the ability to discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. That's why you can listen to teaching, preaching, and you can say, something doesn't sound right about that. I may not be able to put my finger on it, but I know that that is not right. That's the spirit of truth in you who is leading you into all truth, who convinces you of what is right. Um, William Hendrickson, the commentator, brought up another threat that seems like an obvious one when we think about the depths, um, but I thought it was insightful. He said, does hell seem to open its jaws? There's a threat that can come from below, right? Does hell seem to open its jaws toward us? Does hell still seem like a real threat for anyone here? Well, those who trust in Christ, we know are absolutely secure. Why? Because the jaws of hell swallowed our Lord Jesus Christ. But God raised him from the dead. And the jaws of hell have no more claim on him or on any of his people for whom he experienced hell. There is no jaws of hell, jaws of death for us who are in Christ. So as we think about this, the depths can be a metaphor for sinful humanity for the wicked who would seek to destroy us through cunning, through their secret counsels in the depths of their heart. It can refer to the depths of deception or false teaching or from the very threat of hell below. None of it can conquer us. We are super conquerors over all of this. Finally, Paul uses a catch-all phrase. <laughs> I call, the, I call it a catch-all phrase because it really covers anything else that somebody could possibly raise as another circumstance that could come against us. I mean, he does a pretty thorough job, doesn't he? But here's his catch-all. Nor any other created thing, in Romans 8, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. In other words, if there's anything else I haven't been able to think of, by the way, it's also covered, because it's created. It's created. 
death, life, angels, principalities, powers, time itself, the heavens above, hell beneath. It's all created. Why is that important to know? Because Christ created all things. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's critical we have good theology, that we know the truth, so that we're not deceived. Colossians 1, verse 16, For by him, that's a reference to Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And because he created all things, they're all subject to him. They're all subject to him. He rules and reigns over all of it. That which is uncreated always trumps that which is created. The creator always trumps the creation. So, this is put in the context of God's love, isn't it? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's love over us or toward us always triumphs and will endure forever. That's what he's saying. None of the circumstances in verse 35 that touch the mind or the body and none of the circumstances in verses 38 and 39 from all these known domains can divorce us from God and cause us to lose our salvation. That's what he's saying. Those things can be used subject to his will, in order to accomplish his good pleasure for us. And what is that again? His purpose, his will, his pleasure is that each of us be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. It's ultimately to draw out the dross, the sin from our lives. So if God wants to use some of those tools to do that, he will. In fact, he does, in order to make us more like Christ to resemble him more. As Christ, that perfect man who was totally dependent on his Father, always bringing glory to his Father, always doing what pleased him. That's where he's bringing us in our Christian walk. So Paul then concludes, well, who shall be able to separate us or what shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And those are not just flyover words either. What's Paul doing there? He's, he's showing us that the love of Christ that he mentioned in verse 35 and the phrase, him who loved us in verse 37 and the love of God in verse 39 are all the same source. In other words, the love of Christ is the love of God. Isn't that a wonderful evidence that Christ is God? That's what Paul is affirming. It's Christ's love. It's God's love because Christ is God. And it also shows us that Christ is the great mediator of the love of God. All the love of God is centered in Christ and comes to us in Christ. Negatively, that means outside of Christ, there is no love of God for you or for anyone. Steve Lawson would put it this way. Outside of Christ, there is not one drop of the love of God. But inside Christ, there is an ocean of his love. It's all in Christ. So those who talk about the love of God in some abstract way or related to some other system of belief, it's not the love of the true and living God. It's not the special agape love of God which he has shown us sacrificially by giving up his son for us. There's only one love of God like that and it only comes through his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, it is one thing to say with our mouths that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, right? None of the realms that we talked about today can harm us. And we can say that. We can affirm that. But my question for you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's for you? That he died for you? That he was raised for you? that he was exalted to the right hand of power where he intercedes for you? Do you believe that no person and no circumstance can ever be against you in any meaningful way? 
that no one and nothing can ever break the bond of God's love that he has for you. This text is teaching us that our God is great. That our God is massive. That he's glorious. That he's unstoppable. That he is the super conqueror and nothing can thwart him or his plans. But I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we all, and I include myself in this, can be so weak in the faith at times is because we have such a small view of the Lord and a huge view of our circumstances, right? It's kind of like Israel. In fact, it's very much like Israel when they looked up, they looked up and they saw the great host of the Egyptian army coming after them toward the Red Sea and they saw that they were vastly outnumbered with all of their horses and their chariots of war and they feared greatly. Or it's like Israel when they went to battle against the Philistines and they learned that their champion, Goliath, stood at nine feet, nine inches tall. That's no joke. I mean, we've got some tall people in this church at 6'4", 6'5", but 9'9", makes 6'4", look small. Covered in heavy-duty armor, right? Huge sword, spear, javelin, all poised and ready for battle. And like them... We flee because we're dreadfully afraid of these circumstances. And you know what this passage in Romans 8, 31 to 39 is saying? We were doing a little reading the other night in 1 Samuel 17 about David and Goliath, and so it, I think the Lord used that to synthesize this for me. But I just saw a connection here with Romans 8, 31 to 39 and the story of David and Goliath. This text in Romans 8 is just saying what that young shepherd boy, David, said because he had genuine faith in his great God. And here's what he said about that giant. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. What faith is that? Do you ever respond to your fearful circumstances like that, loved ones? As we grow in grace, all of us together, and we grow in the knowledge of Christ, we will be able to make those confident assertions more and more. I know it. Listen to David's confidence in the Lord as we close. 1 Samuel 17, if you're interested in jotting it down, verse 46 and 47, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I love that. I love that. David spoke those words without doubt. But he was simply foreshadowing what the greater David, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, would say concerning his great enemy, Satan himself. He would, as the promise is given from Genesis 3.15, crush the head of the serpent. And you say, when did he do that? At the cross. At the cross, Satan thinks he's defeating Jesus, but he's actually only bruising his heel. Whereas Jesus, through his successful, victorious, substitutionary death, is dealing the death blow to Satan. He crushes his head. And one day when Christ returns, he's going to cut off the head of that serpent once and for all, just like David did as step two. The sling with the stone of step one, he's incapacitated on the ground. Step two is the sword chops his head. Christ is going to do that at the end when he puts Satan and sin and even death to death. He's going to cast them all into the lake of fire. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Christ rules and reigns now. He's ruling and reigning in your hearts. And one day when he comes again, he will consummate that kingdom. And he's asking the question of all of us this morning, since God is for you, who can possibly be against you? 
What shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? See, whatever any one or any circumstance can rob from you in this life, and you will be robbed of plenty, no one and nothing can rob you of the love of God and of your salvation in Christ. That's what is ultimately, eternally secure. He is a great Savior. He's not a potential Savior. He's a complete Savior. And he's proving it to us. And as that conviction develops in our hearts more and more, you know what? All of us, we will become lion-hearted in the face of these enemies that threaten us, whatever they are. So my encouragement to you is go. Go in the strength of the Lord and serve him without fear and without reserve. Perhaps you're somebody who's been sitting on the sidelines, so to speak, fearful of a higher level of commitment to the Lord because you're concerned about all these potential things that could come against you and harm you. This text says, set all those fears aside. Set them all aside and entrust yourself to him who judges righteously, just as our Lord did. Because he's for you. Because he loves you. Because he has promised to fight for you and to defend you. And because he will bring you home to glory. You can count on it. Let's pray. Father, we are rejoicing this morning in this truth that you are God, so simple and yet so profound. Lord, you alone rule. And when you have set your love on a people and decided in your infinite grace and mercy to be kind to us undeserving sinners, Father, you will do everything required to conform us to the image of your Son, which is your purpose. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for, we just say thank you, Lord. We say you are great. You are wonderful in every way. And Lord, what can we offer you but our very lives as service in response to these truths? We're just unprofitable servants at the end of the day, Lord. But we love to serve you because you are worthy. And in serving you, we find the rest for our souls that we couldn't find anywhere else, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the work of grace you're doing in each heart. We pray if there's any here that doesn't know you this morning. Father, would you open their eyes and their hearts and their minds to the truth spiritually? Would you rescue their souls and justify them so that they too can Join with us as we march to Zion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.